All right, welcome everyone to our uh, latest edition of Elections Weekly. It's been quite a while since we've done our last one, but we're starting a new year and starting a new, a new series, or rather returning to an old series that people really, really liked. And so we're excited to relaunch this. This will be a new weekly series that we're doing. Um, we'll be doing this uh, same time every week on Thursdays, so hopefully you'll all be able to tune in and enjoy. Um, for now, we've got uh, Dylan Wade, who is a contributor for Elections Daily. Hello. Also does podcasts. And we have Joe Szymanski, who was our uh, head of the elections team and the interviews team as well, basically responsible for quite a bit of our content. So uh, uh, both of these guys are great guys, and we're going to have a really good discussion here over some of the latest congressional retirements, uh, congressional redistricting changes, and uh, 2022 elections in general. So we're really excited to start. So I guess we'll go ahead and throw it around here. Whoever wants to answer. Um, what do you think so far has been the major retirement announcement so far, the, the highest profile person, congressman, to announce their retirement? You know, if I'm looking at it, Eric, I really think the biggest one so far, I mean, that has to be Stephanie Murphy. And I think I think Murphy is the highest profile one because she's someone who's young. She's someone who headlines her own caucus. And also she's not retiring to run for any higher office like some of these some of these younger folks who are retiring are. She's just retiring from politics outright. I think uh, her retirement is probably the biggest story that we've seen so far. That's a crucial one to see. Not only is kind of the environment in Congress very off right now, but also that you know, environments for Democrats right now, they don't, some of them don't feel comfortable with staying in the house with how it might look like it be to go here in 2022. So this is where we're kind of at right now. And, you know, I think so far, I think Stephanie Murphy retiring is definitely the most interesting retirement we've had so far. Um, it's not the most surprising one. And I don't even know if it technically counts since it's the Senate, but I think Pat Leahy is definitely the, uh, it's not the most high profile, but it's the biggest for Senate Democrats anyway. Um, that's a big change for them. Uh, I don't expect that's the only Senate retirement we're going to get on the Democratic side, but that's the big one right now, I think. And for those who aren't familiar, Leahy, Leahy's actually the only Democrat uh, elected to Vermont from the Senate. Obviously, Bernie Sanders is caucus with the Democrats, but Vermont was for so long a a Democratic uh, a Republican stronghold. And now whoever replaces him will in all likelihood be the second uh, Democratic senator elected from Vermont. Uh, Going to be a long time, of course, before they can surpass all those Republicans that were elected in the meantime. I would tend to agree on the Stephanie Murphy one. I think she is a uh, – she was – she was touted for quite a while as a figure to watch in Florida, but as Florida has shifted the wrong direction for Democrats, um, she the decision not only to not retire, but not to run for anything else seems like a fairly substantial uh, sign of where things are going. One underrated one, I think, would be G.K. Butterfield from North Carolina, a high-ranking member of the Congressional Black Caucus from the 1st Congressional District. I think it's redistricted to the 13th or 14th now. But uh, his district was significantly altered, and rather than attempt to run in a narrow Biden district, he decided to retire. Um, if the maps are upheld, this could obviously be a key Republican target. But even if a, even if new maps are put in place by the courts or by the legislature and the, the district is redrawn to the way it was, this is still a seat that's trending dramatically in the wrong direction uh, for, for Democrats in the long term. Um, anyone else you can think of that's, uh, that's really been up there? Obviously, you know... Um, there's been several others. A lot of California Democrats in particular have 
uh, have announced their retirement, which is a fairly big deal and a pretty stable delegation. Yeah, uh, already four already four California Democrats are out. Uh, Karen Bass is retiring, but she's planning to run for the mayor uh, of Los Angeles. But uh, Jackie Spear, Louis, Lucia Royal, Robillard, and Alan Lowenfall uh, are all just retiring. And of course, a big profile name that we haven't heard from a long time, who's been there for thirty years now, is Maxine. <coughs> excuse me, Maxine Waters. Uh, you know, she's someone who's definitely become high profile uh, for her her role on committees in the Trump era. Uh, she has not announced any intent yet whether or not to run. Uh, it's not like she was drawn in with anyone in within the new maps uh, from California. But, however, we have seen some high profile or maybe even just, re- you know, longstanding members of the Congressional Black Caucus retire in the past couple of days. You look at Bob Eddie Bob. Bernice Johnson confirming her retirement uh, earlier last month. You have, Bob you know, Bob. obviously you already mentioned G.K. Butterfield, Eric. Uh, you've got Brenda Lawrence. Just this, just this past week, announcing her retirement. Anthony Brown, he's retiring. You know, he's he's going to run for Attorney General Maryland, likely trying to angle himself up for a governorship run in the future. You've got Bobby Rush, again, a bit of a surprise considering the fight he put up for his seat in redistricting. He's retired, and we've already mentioned Karen Bass, another person who is a member of the Congressional Black Caucus who is retiring. So, you know, that's that's always some key members. And if Waters also retires, you know, that's a lot of, you know, experience and kind of original key leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus that's been there for a long time who would be out of their way in the House. Yeah, I think with all of those high profile retirements in the Congressional Black Caucus, you're going to see it move dramatically left in the next couple of years. Um, These open seats are prime opportunities for uh, more left-wing Democrats to run and probably perform better because they haven't been doing badly in primaries, but they're going to do better in open seats. Um, Another one that I, that probably would have been more high profile if redistricting had gone in a different direction, uh, John Yarmouth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Obviously, with with what um, obviously they did not draw out his uh, Louisville base seat in Kentucky uh, after some push and prodding from uh, Kentucky Republican leadership who did not want to see that seat drawn out. Uh, obviously that didn't happen, but I think you're right though that if it had gone the other way, uh, Yarmouth retirement would be looked at a lot more differently. Yeah, uh, than the way it is now, and we you know we've got other seats to look at. You know there are there are people. And candidates out here who who we don't know about, you know, you know, Hank Johnson, someone who's been around in 2006 in Georgia, he's not announced uh, whether or not he's running again. You know, that would be another potential key figure, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think two of the three House leaders are going uh, Two of Pelosi, Clyburn and Hoyer. I think two of them are done. Are done. No, well, I don't think uh, I think obviously Pelosi says she's running for election. And I think. Hoyer has said he's running for the election, though I'm not so sure about Steny Hoyer. Has Pelosi said she's running again? Because I, she said said, I believe that's that's a, that's a recent thing, I believe, right, Eric? That she said mm-hmm. she's back for 2022. Uh, that she Pelosi? Yeah, I thought that uh, was. I, yeah. I believe that was a thing. Uh, let me check. I, I'm pretty sure she's still on the way out, but I'll, I'll check. 
because I remember her saying she was done uh, as speaker after uh, two terms, and that was at the beginning of uh, 2018, I think. Oh, gotcha. So this would be her second term, and I mean, I've never expected a politician to uh, go and leave power when they say they're going to, but... Mm -hmm. Either way, I, I think I think there's a surrounding point that... Uh, you know, uh, there's there's going to be a lot of elder statesmen uh, leaving the Democratic Party. It seems like, you know, another one I want to mention, Benny Thompson from Mississippi is another one who's been around since 1993. Mm -hmm. and another one who who may decide, to, you know, he hasn't announced any uh, intent on whether or not he's running again. That could be another one we could see leave. You know, there's yeah. there's still. A, a good amount of people and congressmen and women who we don't necessarily know yet, you know, which way they're going to, which way they're going to fall on here uh, and, and how they're going to run. You know, there, there are still questions to be asked, you know, New York's one where we can maybe see some upturn, you know, mm -hmm. does, does Nadia Vasquez run again? Velasquez run again, excuse me. You know, Karen Maloney is someone who is deeply under fat in a primary, you know, there, again, there are just, a good amount of people who we, we just haven't seen decisions from yet. You know, this is a list of 25 already for the Democrats and it's a list that could very much continue to grow. But that's also not uncommon in midterm years that are going to be bad for the party in power. I mean, this isn't something unexpected. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, this, this is something that we saw from Republicans in 2018 uh, some that we saw from Democrats in 2010, some we saw from Republicans in 2006. You know, the, you're right. This is not an atypical thing to see in what uh, a year, going into a year that a good many potentially see as a wave year for uh, Republicans. So that's that's really going to be very key here. But I think I think the point to be made, though, is that there's still a lot left to go here. And uh, it's really a question of whether or not how much bigger this list could get for Democrats in the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think this one is, uh, I think this wave is only particularly noteworthy because it comes at a time when the party is kind of in turmoil ideologically. Mm -hmm. So this has an opportunity to kind of remake the party. Yeah. And of course, in the long run, you know, this is what happened in previous wave elections as well. In 2018 you, or 2018, you saw a lot of moderate Republicans uh, swept out of office, especially from suburban districts. Mm -hmm. And then in, in 2010, you saw a lot of conservative Democrats swept out, which made the Democratic caucus go to the left overall, uh, broadly speaking. Those sorts of shifts can have a long term implication on the direction of a party. So mm -hmm. it's worth keeping an eye on even these inter-party primaries and inter-party inter, you know, inter retirements even. Um, just in the long run, you know, when people like Jim Cooper could be drawn out or, even, you know, that's not only a Republican elected, that's also a moderate Democrat that is losing, that is removed from the caucus. Um, mm -hmm. Even if that seat holds, you could see Jim Cooper replaced with a progressive Democrat, which, again, is better long-term for progressives than it is. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we have to remember that 37 Republicans uh, did not seek re-election from the House of Representatives uh, in 2018. So again, this is this is definitely a list uh, that can and probably will grow uh, for Democrats in the upcoming couple of months here. Absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's it's a major issue for them to keep an eye on, um, in you know, in the long run. Um, now, next up, uh, if, if we don't have any more retirements to discuss, would be congressional districts. Um, obviously, most states have sent in their congressional redistricting maps so far. Um, a couple are still holdouts. Some are pending litigation, or actually many are pending litigation. The, the, the viability of that is questionable um, in many of these states, but in some of them there are legitimate doubts as to whether the maps will hold. Uh, so far, though, uh, it's generally been seen as either a wash overall or a very slight benefit for Democrats in some of these states, but a lot of the bigger states haven't been, or uh, so, several Republican states haven't put out their maps yet, states like Kansas, Louisiana, uh, I believe Mississippi just passed a map today, so quite a few states are still outstanding. Um, so I guess starting t with Joe, who's, who is leading our elections team and is covering a lot of these, what are your general thoughts on the state of redistricting so far and what we've seen from the process and the results? You know, so far, I really do think it's been a, it's been mostly a wash. You know, people are going to talk about, you know, what Democrats did in Illinois and California and what they might do in New York. New York doesn't look as certain, maybe, as we thought it would be as a severe Democratic gerrymander, as we I think we thought it would be. A couple of months ago, there are some reports that kind of coming out of the state that do kind of uh, dissuade us from that thinking. But, you know, there are a good amount of options here for Republicans to to kind of gain in the, in the forecast that uh, a lot of people have up right now. You know, you look at a place like South Carolina where we expect them, you know, to, uh, you know, to short uh, first district representative Nancy Mace. That's a seat that's going to go from a competitive R held seat to probably a safe R seat in some way. You look at Tennessee, you know, they're likely, it seems like they're the one most likely to knock out a city rep at this point. It looks, it sounds, and here's like Jim Cooper is going to be sliced out of Nashville. That would gain Republicans a seat. You know, you go down towards a place like Arkansas. They shored up French Hill, who was in a more competitive, you know, Little Rock based seat. They shored him up. His seat is less competitive now. Uh, you've got Kansas, who is one of the two states who haven't released a map yet, where it seems like more and more it looks like Republicans are going to go to try and for a for nothing map, which whether I don't know that will work or not, but it seems to be the way they're going, or at least a way to make that third district more competitive that Sharice Davids holds. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's there's still. A lot of red states where we're going to see Republican gains, we're going to see Republican-leaning seats in here. And, I mean, you've got New Hampshire uh, just recently getting ready to pass a seat that, in all honesty, has a seat has a Republican seat that voted for McCain, Romney, and uh, former President Trump twice. So, you know, it's going to be one of those things where Republicans, you know, they have a lot of seats left to gain here that are going to be likely in their column uh, when we, you know, add these states into our ratings. And uh, you have any thoughts, Dylan, before we get into uh, in, into the broader details? Um, it, it does largely seem like a wash. Um, California, I don't, I think went a little harder than most people expected. Uh, mm -hmm. New Jersey did exactly what New Jersey does and released a fairly non-offensive map with really weird reasoning. Um, that has now tied them up in court because that's what New Jersey does. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, uh, I, I don't know this stuff as well as you guys do, so I'll pass on. Yeah. 
Uh, one thing I would mention is I think uh, we'll have some additional stuff coming out on the website this week, but is the, the prospect of independent redistricting commissions. Um, obviously, these are really, really heavily touted going into the decade. The last year, they become trendy for additional states to add. Uh, since then, I think at minimum, while many of these maps are on balance pretty decent, uh, Michigan's came out all right. I have some qualms how they did it, but Michigan's is generally okay. Um, you know, um, Colorado's came out pretty good. I think they had a reasonable map. Uh, I, I really dislike California's in general. I really dislike the Arizona model. I think the map final result there is reasonable. But I think what's mainly shown is a lot of contentiousness in this process that wasn't even seen in the 2010s. Right. I mean, this major focus, not just on states that are redistricting, but also on the commission states themselves. The Virginia Commission not being able to agree on a map. Uh, New Jersey's deadlocked person literally saying that he chose the, the Democratic map because the Democrats didn't get the last decade. Uh, California, you know, having uh, a commission which was filled with experts, but very questionable and partisan balance. Um, several of the Republicans, in fact, were if you it, it would be like uh, like one of the Republicans, for example, um, you know, no offense to any of them is from Berkeley as a Planned Parenthood donor. Um That'd kind of be like the rough equivalent of, you know, picking, if you were doing an independent commission in Mississippi, picking a Democrat from, a white Democrat from the middle of nowhere who donates to the NRA. That'd be kind of unusual. It would certainly not representative of the base of the party. I guess the long and short of it for me is that I have not been pleased with a lot of these states, but I think by and large, states have been less less prone to gerrymandering than I thought they would, specifically the extreme stringmanders. We've only really seen a couple of those so far, uh, Maryland and uh, Illinois, uh, to some degree, Texas. Uh, North Carolina's is stringy, but not to an extreme degree. It's still reasonably compact appearing. Uh, that seems to be the number one thing that's changed this decade is the lack of those bizarre string seats, at least to me. Any thoughts? Yeah. yeah I mean, even even these Maryland maps uh, for the new decade are, are, are less stringy and more compact than uh, the ones that were here for the last decade. Uh, you know, these, this is something that is certainly something, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that kind of are a group of people that we talk to and we, and we react to this stuff online. When we think gerrymanders, we, we always think about the, the heavy string manders that uh, a lot of people post about and a lot of people show off for doing, you know, that's not something that, uh, generally really happens in a lot of these states though uh when it comes to when they do their maps you know and i think that's something that we're gonna have to as we you know we become more informed about gerrymandering and we become it becomes a more watched process this process of uh redistricting and map drawing and reapportionment you know that's something that it's gonna have to be understood i think a bit better is that just this this aspect that the heaviest gerrymander is never the most likely thing to happen. Mm -hmm. Eric, you're muted. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. <laughs> uh, the heaviest example of that probably, I think, would be Kentucky. Um, Kentucky, you could easily, this is a state Trump won by about 20 points, if I recall right. Theoretically, very easy to draw six districts which are perfectly balanced at Trump plus 20 in each of them. Not only did the legislature not do that, it appears they're going to be continuing with a five to one map with a Louisville based democratic vote sync. They haven't even shored up the, the seat based around Lexington, which is only about Trump plus 11 under the new map. Uh, that's shockingly low. 
for a district that was competitive in 2018. So even when they had the chance to shore up a district that had been competitive, they chose not to, whether it's because the incumbent didn't want to have portions of the seat removed, which is a pretty common, a common reason given, whether they just didn't want to risk another person, didn't want Thomas Massey's seat to take more. Maybe they were accounting for changes in the Cincinnati suburbs. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons for this, but very few states chose to go out of their way to make the most extreme maps. I don't know. I feel like they would love a chance to get rid of Massey. <laughs> well, they would be, they'd be getting rid of him with a Democrat. That would be the problem. Ah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, even other states, uh, California. Obviously, California drew a map that's very, very unfavorable to, unfavorable to Republicans on balance. I will continue to point out the Central Valley. There were no commissioners on the commission from the Central Valley. There were a couple from, um, uh, from, Stock, uh, from Stockton which is technically Central Valley adjacent, but saying that's the Central Valley would be like saying that someone from Greensboro knows uh, Wake County in North Carolina or that someone from Philadelphia knows a lot about, um, you know, um, uh, Lancaster. Um, you know, it, it's kind of unusual. And so if you look at the map, the weakest part of that map is the Central Valley where there's problems. But by and large, a Democratic legislature would have drawn a substantially worse map. In all likelihood, not the fifty-three, not the fifty-two to nothing maps, because those arguably would violate the VRA and replace Democratic incumbents at risk. But certainly, they could have drawn something more egregious. The commission could have even done that if they chose to. They could have completely gotten rid of Ken Calvert's seat. It wouldn't have been too difficult to do that in Southern California. Um, so even in states where there were results that favored one party, another it would be Texas. Texas, uh, they could have gotten rid of a seat in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Instead, they 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 kept even. In fact, they didn't even shore up um, Beth Van Dyne's seat that much. They shored it up a little bit, but they didn't do that much, relatively speaking. Um, it's just an interesting thing to look at compared to, you know, I know there's the jokes with the laser eyes people on election Twitter, uh, but th the very extreme things haven't been showing up, just broadly speaking, which is uh, interesting compared to last decade, for sure, whether it's due to public scrutiny being high or whether it's due to just incumbents being more picky about what they want in their districts. Uh we really don't know. It could be also coordination from the national level, uh, the national Republican and Democratic redistricting efforts, which are a thing this decade. Uh, there's a lot of different things. There's a lot of different reasons this could be the case, basically. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not surprised it's not as extreme. I tend to think that both cre uh, both extreme partisan ends expect worse out of the other side than they're ever actually mm -hmm. going to do yeah i mean the exceptions to this the illinois democratic party did a brutal gerrymander of chicago or of the state but even then they did something tamer than they could have done um because incumbents particularly did not want to be double bunked they didn't want to uh chicago democrats did not want to be taking in parts of downstate even if they even if the seats were competitive they didn't want to stretch too far into downstate because they'd have to they would have to actually they wouldn't really need to deal with them, but there would be a new constituency they'd have to bother with. Uh, they would just rather focus on the area they know and are comfortable with. There's a lot of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we have yet to see maps from New York, which is a big one. Florida is still working on their maps. North Carolina's maps may, may change as a result of litigation. Uh, New Jersey, of course, is kind of, could be on a knife's edge. You really don't know. They've been given a pretty lenient timeline to give the commissioner or to give the, the lone tiebreaker a better reason for choosing the Democratic map than the Democrats drew it and the Republicans drew it last time, which is a, which is the sort of logic that as a parent, you know, not as a parent myself, but 
parents tend to make that and it's generally seen as a bad idea well well you know john got this you know got this toy last time so we're gonna give it to the other kid this time that can lead to problems and this has specifically led to a problem in new jersey with what their maps decisions are being made but a lot of these aren't set in stone but you know since we kind of talked about this uh, i believe we posted our ratings our updated election ratings on the website you want to go over some of the some of the stuff we've or changes we made because this is obviously the first uh, election ratings we've done of the cycle. Um, we have most of the states that have put new maps up, and we're working on the others. Uh, you can find them on our uh, blog post at Elections Daily. Um, but obviously, Joe was the one in charge of all this, and so uh, if you want to go ahead and explain it, yeah. Then... <laughs> and and I do I do want to really show you guys uh, something cool here. So. Uh, when when all the seats are done, when we when all the maps are done and all, and everyone we know is uh, in, you know, we're gonna post for you guys a way for you to look at our ratings uh, in a different way every day. So if you uh, if I can share my screen here, you know, it, it's this is something that you know it's just a very regular, uh, you know, uh, Google you know Google sheet, but it's something that we've got here where we can see all of our ratings here. And of course, easy enough then, uh, you know, all of our uh, ratings in a nice little neat column for how we're going to look at these races in 2022 for, you know, for right now, this is our house ratings, of course, which is what most people are looking at here. And uh, this is a little thing that we've got going on here. You know, if we, put it in here as, you know, Alabama's first district, which this it will be so far when we see the map probably. And boom, it goes into our deep red color and immediately goes into our safe Republican column, which we only do by numbers because if we listed it by <laughs> obviously that would be a little much. But this is where we're at right now, though. Uh, we have 119 seats we see as safely Republican and 115 seats that we see as safely Democratic. And then the rest of the seats that we have so far are the competitive seats we have. I also do want to say that we do have some states added in that uh, haven't technically uh, become official yet, but we expect no uh, major changes from their maps. Uh, you look at Arkansas and Washington, we both have included uh, onto these uh, numbers here. But so far, this is what we've got. Uh, obviously, you see some seats here. We've got our likely... Democratic category or leans Democratic category or toss up or leans Republican and our likely Republican category. Uh, you know, and right now we have about 12 seats uh, flipping to the Republicans. And then we have about three seats, uh, all of them new seats. Uh, so far flipping to the Democrats for a total of R plus nine so far uh, in our ratings. That would mean uh, if that would be the result on election night, 2020, uh, that would mean that uh, house, Republicans would uh, take the House of uh, would take the House of Representatives. They would take the majority, uh, and with the because they only need five seats to get to the majority from where they are right now. So uh, obviously, right now this is the ratings. We weren't putting this full thing out yet. We're gonna wait until we uh, have everything filled out. Once that is officially done, you guys will be able to access this to uh, every day if you want to, and uh, you know take a quick and easy check on what our ratings are. Uh, for the 2022 cycle. So yep. I, I don't know how we didn't end up talking about it, but actually the Nevada redistricting is bizarre. 
Yeah, it's baffling. It's 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 one of the strangest redistricting situations I've seen in a while. If you want to explain it, you can. I could also explain it because it's made basically everyone unhappy except for national Democrats who love the map, the the national you know redistricting trusts or whatever. Yeah. So basically, they created a map that they thought would give them a shot at four zero, but instead will probably make Republicans go 4 Yeah, it was uh, 3 to 1. It was supposed to be 3 to 1, really. Oh, so, the, yeah. Yeah, because the Mark Amity seat is still safe. But instead, they've unpacked uh, t- Dinotitis's seat. Correct. And, yeah, it Dinotitis is not happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's, gone from, she's gone from a very safe Democratic seat, which, and again, this map could arguably have VRA concerns. Granted, I don't think Republicans are going to do a VRA lawsuit. Um, but it did take a substantial portion of Hispanic voters out of a Hispanic seat. Uh, in theory, that's not ideal for redistricting, but I believe these seats are only like Biden plus five or plus six. They're not really, these are all basically wave targets. Um, yeah. they, they just basically drew the Northern seat with Mark Amity, kept it the way it is, and then split the remaining portion of the state, which is about Biden plus five to seven into three evenly Biden plus five to seven seats. In theory, this is a really good idea. The problem is it's a very bad idea in practice because Nevada is, one, trending the wrong way. Um, it's it's trending Republican gradually. We don't know if Republicans will be competitive there, but it's a state where with low Hispanic turnout and a Hispanic voter trend to Republicans and a lot of other you know Asian voters, uh, Jewish voters, who swung a little bit more Republican than they did in 2020 than 2016, could easily see one to all of these seats be flipping in a midterm. Uh, that's really bad. That's the definition of a dummy manager. The last time this happened was in Arkansas, where Democrats decided to take to take a um, to try and draw a two to two map in Arkansas. They could have easily drawn. They control the legislature. They could have drawn a three to one map, which would have kept one Democratic seat. Instead, they decided to have, I believe, three Democratic seats and ended up having no Democratic seats for the entirety of the decade, um, which is. The gold standard in dummy man. That's probably a lifetime achievement award for being honest to the people who have who who drew that map. Yeah. But Nevada could very well be in a similar position, um, and obviously Hispanic groups are unhappy. The Hispanic seat that Dinatitis represents became unpacked, or unpacked is the new term. I really don't like that term because it, it it doesn't make a lot of sense as a context. Usually, it means that like splitting out Detroit into the suburbs so that it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But regardless. The map isn't ideal for Democrats, and this is the one they drew. They were so proud of this map. Um, it, so this is that's a state to, to watch going forward. Another state to watch, I think, will actually be New Mexico. They made a really strange decision in drawing their map, uh, mainly putting um, putting Teresa Luger um, uh, Fernandez, or, I can't remember her name, but putting the Northern Democratic representative, who is a progressive, with oil country. Um, that's a really, really bad idea. The seat is actually uh, more competitive than Melanie Stansbury's Albuquerque-based seat, and the cost of making a Democratic-leaning uh, congressional district could be the possibility of it being a two-to-one Republican map in a bad year. Um, really, the, the West has kind of proven to be kind of a mixed bag to Democrats in a lot of ways. Washington didn't go the way they thought it would. It's very likely that Republicans could at least have a shot in the 8th District. We have the 8th District as a toss-up right now. It became more Republican from 2016 to 2020. Um, Oregon, they didn't draw 6-0. They drew 5-1. Te- I mean, technically, it's more like 4-1-1, but the, the one is still a Biden plus 7-8 seat. 
Um, it's really more of a stretch than anything. So we really saw a bunch of weird decisions. I think it's to put it lightly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, but the, the these are the way we see the seats uh, as of right now. Obviously, we, we see all three of those Nevada seats we were talking about. Those are all in the Leans Democratic category. But we have a, a load of toss-ups here uh, with most of the Republican-held uh, toss-ups uh, being from California in uh, the Garcia seat, the Valadez seat, and I believe that would be the Michelle Steele uh, seat uh, we all currently have rated as toss-up. Uh, and then as well, we also have, of course, Peter Myers, uh, new Michigan 03, which is a Biden plus nine seat uh, out there in Western Michigan. Uh, and Yvette Harrell's new Mexico 02, which is about a Biden plus six seat. So, you know, those are everything else that you see in the toss-up category are Democratic held seats. And it's going to be really fascinating to see kind of how these things switch and go here as we get closer and closer to uh, 2022 and that final election day. Yep, definitely. And again, we'll, we'll be posting the link once we've gotten more of these states coming in. That gives you a rough idea of what we're, we're looking for with the redistricting situation going forward. Um, uh, trying to, um, sorry, a uh, little bit spacey. I've, uh, there's been a bit of a, a cough going around at the office. So I'm, a, I'm still a bit uh, disoriented from that a little bit. Um, but yeah, any other thoughts on redistricting before we move on? No. All right. So, uh, I think the other topic we're going to discuss here today, um, did revolve a little bit around some of the stuff going on at the Capitol right now. Um, specifically, I know one of you guys wanted to mention a moment of cringe that had emerged from the, uh, the press conference of the commemoration of the January 6th incident. I'm going to call it an incident. Whether the, ter the right term is riot or insurrection or whatever you want to call it, something certainly happened there, and it's been a year since it happened. Um, generally speaking, most people uh, do not like what happened for obvious reasons. Uh, Democrats held their own press conference, you know, commemorating the anniversary of it, announcing renewed uh, measure to support their uh, voting rights bills, which are basically dead on arrival in the Senate. Um, then you had Republicans, of course, either being at Johnny Isaacson's funeral or uh, putting out angry press releases about the, what the Democrats were saying. But the moment of cringe, I believe I'll leave to you guys to discuss. <coughs> well, there, there, there were, uh, there were two moments of cringe that I saw today. One from run from uh, each side of the aisle. Of course, the more publicized one uh, has been Nancy Pelosi invoking Hamilton uh, at her, uh, at her um, uh, presser for the for this recognition of uh, January sixth, uh, you know that you know I I it's been something that's been joked about in places like the Onion and the Babylon Bee for ages, and I I did not think it was real when I first I saw know. when I first when I first saw said uh, report. It is apparently a real thing that occurred and happened. Uh, you know, you know, it was, it was a thing that happened today, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I still can't believe it. Of course, there was a second moment of cringe when, uh, Matt Gates and, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to be gallivanting around on, uh, RSBN saying what happened on the six was not bad, which is not true. It was bad. Uh, you know, and, uh, Matt Gates called it uh, that it was something that was put on by the feds and it was a fed surrection. 
not an insurrection. <laughs> it was a Fed insurrection. The federal government was behind it all along last year. Can the federal government insurrect itself? Yes, that that <laughs> is that is what Matt Gates was pushing earlier this morning. So two two moments of cringe, as most Americans probably do not want to remember what they felt on that day on this day last year. Uh, we had two moments of cringe, one from each party, which only symbolizes Washington better than ever before. I would nominate a third, mm. uh, and it comes from both parties. Uh, the Democrats going to praise Dick Cheney. <laughs> I would throw that on the list. Um, yes. Uh, after all their talk, it would be like them going and praising Trump. I give them 10 years. It's roughly along the same lines of uh, of you know Donald Trump praising uh, the former mayor, the former governor of Illinois, uh, Rob Blagojevich, who was back in the day was the Republican number one Republican target of Democratic corruption nationally, specifically tied to the Obama administration, and now of course is an amazing you know former Democrat who has stuck up to the establishment somehow, I guess by threatening to sell a Senate seat. I, I guess that's sticking it to the establishment. Really don't know. Uh, but yeah, I think I think there's a general joke in the conservative community has been that, you know, every 10 years, Democrats decide the previous Republican president is now acceptable to at least not actively dislike. Uh, we saw we saw this with the rehabilitation of uh, first uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, which I would argue was deserved. George W. Bush, which many Democrats uh, now consider, you know, a much more acceptable and palatable alternative to the corrosive and abrasive politics of Donald Trump. I still protest, but that, <laughs> but hey. And now, you know, 10 years from now, obviously, you know, Ron DeSantis could not, is, is going to be much worse than Trump was, um, you know, much worse than whoever follows him. It, it's, it's unusual. Uh, at least Republicans seem to at least hold their anger for presidents a little bit better. I don't see a whole lot of Republicans going around extolling the merits of Bill Clinton. Uh, I, I still don't really see that, even though there's ideological reasons they could do so if they really wanted to. Uh, it's just a little bit of a fluke of one side of the aisle, I think. There, but the Hamilton thing was—it's—it's it's, yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> I thought we were supposed to be doing a, pre a really serious press conference to commemorate a terrible event. Nope, play Hamilton. Yeah, yeah and then launch right off the bat, comparing it to nine eleven and Pearl Harbor, and then invoke Hamilton at the end because this is a serious event worthy of honor you know of commemorating alongside the worst events in american history it's not even about hamilton because the song was fine i don't think it was inappropriate the speech he he gave beforehand was fine i don't think it was inappropriate but getting it officially sanctioned by the by the speaker you'd think somebody in the office would have gone hey i think this might be a bad idea and a little tone deaf <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's the thing is that just this this is supposed to be this was aligned to us or it was at least sold to us even that this was going to be a very serious day with you know a lot of memorializing and discussion, but instead it's been dominated online by one event where you know they bring out Hamilton. You know, it's it's just one of those things where it feels very much like, you know, you, you had something here. Maybe, maybe you had something here, mm -hmm. but I mean, one one thing and one one decision kind of took away from it all. You know, it's a very easy thing to say now. 
uh, you know, they, they say it's a serious state of thing, but you know, why are they, why are they then playing Hamilton and invoking a musical? I mean, what's supposed to be a serious press conference, you know, what's the point then? Yeah. I mean, Democrats undermining their own message with a stupid, uh, publicity stunt that ends up shooting them in the foot is not unusual but Mm -hmm. you would think they would have taken a lot more care with this event since it seems to be central to their 2022 message uh despite the results in virginia and other states Mm -hmm. to me though there's one thing that did come out of this that genuinely surprised me on both sides and I think it's really disheartening what was the result of this, is that Mitch McConnell yesterday opened the door to reforming the Electoral Count Act. This is the number one thing that could be done to prevent a January 6th incident from happening again by reduce, by basically eliminating the stupid provision where if you just get a single member of the House and a single member of the Senate to object to a state's electoral votes, you have to debate. And if, a, and you, know, if you have majority support, if you have enough support, you can change electors or get rid of them. Getting rid of this and automating that process, which is what general support for the Electoral Crown Act reform is, comprises, would be the biggest thing that you could do to prevent something like that from happening again. Chuck Schumer's response to this was quite literally to close the door to reforming the Electoral Count Act. I cannot for the life of me understand why they can't even take a, a win on that. This seems like something that both sides could reasonably support. But the support... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. We should push for our own bill but take the win while we can Mm -hmm. put push what we want that's i i I want hr1 too but take the small win where you can get it especially since we seem to have made this bizarre decision to abandon build back better in favor of passing voting rights which is dead in both the senate and the supreme court (laughs) Yeah, it, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I mean, I guess their logic could be that this would be like that this would be like the bipartisan infrastructure bill where you have the smaller bill passed and it gets rid of the, the bigger bill. But that doesn't make any sense because this is, if this is an existential threat to democracy, you take what you can get. Um, and, and even if anyone, yeah, I'll let Dylan go ahead, Dylan, go ahead. Dylan. Sorry. Um, no, I even if that were true, built. But, the strategy with Build Back Better and the bipartisan infrastructure bill made sense because both bills had a reasonable chance of passing because everybody who needed to be involved was interested in pushing it forward mm-hmm. on the face, on their face. They were interested in this situation. Passing a smaller bill in all likelihood is the only thing that will happen. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Jim. The only thing it's it's yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, it's... again, it it's something that makes the most sense. Uh, the 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 rule in Congress about one person and one senator objecting means that we can debate the whole thing and potentially overrule electoral results is a bad rule. It was always a bad rule, led to chaos, led to stupid things, and finally, kind of, you know, obviously bit us all on the butt this time last year. It was a stupid thing. It is a bad rule. Yeah. And if there is a bill that can be brought up to change that rule, you should take the opportunity to change that rule. Now, yeah. do I think it was the only thing that would have 
prevented the 20 uh, last year no i no, think no, if no. you actually want to fix the problem besides all the provisions and hr1 put those aside because we all agree that those aren't passing you could reasonably i think pass something that says state legislatures don't get to decide how their electoral votes are allocated beyond their votes because that would genuinely fix a lot of the problems we see and it would prevent subversion i don't know if mcconnell's proposal would have allowed that but honestly, I think any proposal that doesn't at least begin to fix that problem doesn't actually stop something like last year or worse from happening again. Mm -hmm. Even then, though, it, it, it stops it from happening on a day. The reason that people were brought there on January 6th is because they all knew this was like they all knew this was going to happen like this. This whole yes. big what was expected to be a grandstanding event was was going to happen. Yes. Take that ability away. It, you know, uh, it, it takes away then the ability of, you know, to, to kind of have a reason to bring everyone together. You know, it, it takes away a very symbolic reason then to try and gather people on a day in DC. It may, I think it makes things a lot harder and it gives a lot less reasoning to then potential future efforts like this. It, it gives a lot less reasoning. Again, it's a simple thing, but, you know, this is Congress. Nothing ever seems to be simple. Right. So legislating in Congress nowadays. And, and you're right. It does prevent, it, it does at least, it does at least uh, quiet the fire. I do think if you want to stop the quieter attempts at subversion, you do need to look at how electoral votes are actually allocated. But, uh but uh, fair enough. I didn't think I didn't think about the symbolic nature of it. Valid. Yeah, it's a single like. There's a whole lot of reasons why this is a problem, and it's really disheartening. As someone who genuinely wants to see a, a way to prevent something like that from happening again, the door literally closed on any ability to fix this. And it's worth noting, HR uh, one does not fix this. It does not adjust the Electoral Count Act at all. If anything, passing HR one can make it more likely for something like that to happen because one side or the other with federalized control of elections could be very legitimately or at least feel legitimately angered at the federal government uh, encouraging protests at the Capitol on that day. It's yeah. a very major problem. Yes. HR one is a good bill. I think it's not perfect. And there are a lot of changes I would make as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really, really a, uh, that's the big thing that I thought would at least have some progress on, but to not see anything happen. In fact, the door literally closed is, is pretty uh, disconcerting. If, or, it's really unfortunate. I, I for what it's worth, way. I don't think the door is closed for the entire... Uh, I don't think the door is completely closed. Um, Schumer's gone back on what he's said many times this session, so I wouldn't be surprised if when he finally realizes, when it finally gets through his head, that it's not going to pass. I wouldn't be surprised if mm -hmm. he tried to come back to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that again, I think we're on this, I think we're all on the same page as to what this would probably look like and, and, and what should, should happen going forward is just a matter of whether elected officials could realize the potential danger of, of this. Mm -hmm. And with that, I think we've, uh, we've had a very good discussion here. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, we really appreciate you being back and watching our first new edition of Lectures Weekly. Again, we'll be back here every Thursday at this time. 
if you're interested in following us on social media, you can find us at elections underscore daily and elections-daily.com. We post election coverage, election news, um, redistricting. We have a bunch of tools on our website that we're improving, and we're going to be unveiling new changes to them at some point. It's really exciting uh, being part of the Decision Desk HQ News Network. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at D.E. Cunningham, too. And where can we find you guys on Twitter? You can find me right here, and it's uh, nice, my little name, nice little name tag here, uh, at Joseph Szymanski. That's where you can find me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Dylan B. Wade one. It's also in my little header there. All right. And uh, yeah, again, thank you guys for, uh, for, for joining us and be sure to like, and subscribe. If you liked uh, this podcast, uh, you can do so. You can listen to us on YouTube or on any number of podcast platforms out there, uh, but we appreciate your support and we'll see you on next week's episode of elections, uh, elections weekly.